0: Dennis and Elsie Kinlaw served Jesus side-by-side side for over 50 years. They lovingly opened their home to countless students, missionaries, and hungry-hearted seekers. Their love for Jesus and for each other drew scores of people into the family of God. We hope you sense the hospitality of God as you listen. Reading from the opening verse. Paul and apostles sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me. And then in the fifth chapter of the Galatian letter, reading from verse 24, three very cryptic but crucial verses. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live with the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. You may have a little different translation there. This is the NIV, which translates the Greek word for flesh as sinful nature. I don't think it's a very good translation, but that's what this one says. So you will find other translations that say those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. We've been thinking in terms of the crosses on Calvary. And we said, everyone who's a Christian knows that it's the central one that is the most significant. In fact, it's the crucial one. And you know enough probably about English language to know the word crucial comes from the word cross. It is the one toward which all history pointed, and it is the one from which all history comes. It is God's answer to the human problem. And when it is, we say it is God's answer to the human problem, in that cross is the answer to your problem, and in that cross is the answer to mine. We said yesterday, we now have on that cross the last Adam to undo the damage done by the first Adam. He's the divine one, all right, but he is the God-man. And it's interesting that salvation doesn't take place in God, it takes place in man, because the problem has to be solved where the problem is. And it's in you and me, and so God had to come into the problem in Christ and become part of the problem in order to redeem us from it. And so now we have the one who is going to undo in himself the damage done by the fall. Now, what was that damage? We said that really that damage was simply a reorientation of Adam and Eve's lives. Having been centered in him, waiting every day joyously for the evening when he would come and walk and talk with them, Now they're enamored by something other than God and that enamorment conflicts with their love for God and their relationship to Him. And so they turn, they push God and His will aside and self-will and a self-interest that is apart from the will of God comes into control. And now they find themselves alienated from God and in conflict with each other and with themselves. Paul says that that reorientation, that self-will that is there, that's what he calls the flesh. It is his term simply, the theological term. It is used also in the New Testament for the kind of thing that when you pinch yourself you hurt or that they stick needles in when you need to be inoculated, it's used for that kind of flesh. It is also used for mankind generally, but Paul uses it theologically. For man on his own, man standing by himself, man separated from God. We mentioned the passage in Isaiah 53, which has become very crucial for me. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We've faced everyone, not toward Christ and toward God, but we've faced everyone toward our own way toward, to think in terms of ourselves And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity. And if you want a definition of iniquity, it is just that turning of the face and turning of that orientation toward ourselves. Now, the significant thing, it is significant that Paul finds his definition of a Christian in relation to this. You will notice that uh, this is true both in Romans and in Galatians. Paul just simply says, do you know what a Christian is? Now, he uses different terms in different places, but his language is quite different from most of us who are evangelicals in the latter part of the 20th century. In the passage that we read from the fifth chapter, he speaks and says, those who belong to Christ are the ones who've made a profession, the ones who've had a religious experience, the ones who've... uh, Born witness one way or another. know what he says is, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. They have crucified that tendency to turn away from God, that bent away from Him. They have crucified that. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its lust. Now in Romans you get him saying it's just a little different, but it is really the same thing. He says in chapter 8, and there's a great similarity between the passage in Galatians 5 where he speaks about the flesh and the spirit with that culminating passage in Romans 8 as he's been dealing with what salvation is all about, he comes to life in the spirit. And so there's great similarity between Romans 8, 1 to say 14 and Galatians 5. Now in Romans eight thirteen and 14, he says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. It's interesting he doesn't say anything about being born again, isn't it? You may be born again, but if you live according to the flesh, it may take a while, but you will die. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, if by the Spirit, you will live. Life is in God. It is not in us. And if we turn our way, then the shadow comes between us and Him. And the life within us that He's given to us begins to die. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Now that's a priceless line. All who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That There is an immediacy there in our relationship to God, isn't there? There's a presentness there in our relationship to God. It is not saying those who were led by the Spirit of God, but those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children of God. And if you will read Galatians, one of the amazing things to me is the sense of immediacy, the, the, between Paul and Christ and also with that coming with that immediacy is the sense of certainty in Paul that he can stand up and rebuke a Peter because he's close enough to Christ that he knows he's right now uh, the Christian is one for whom Christ was crucified and the Christian has received the benefits of that crucifixion but for Paul one who is a Christian also shares in that cross and shares in the crucifixion with him. And so you find him developing two aspects of the cross. We tend to develop the one, the benefits that come to us in forgiveness and in newness of life and in the witness of the Spirit adoption, all the blessings that come with that. But Paul speaks about our actual participation in that central cross and our involvement in it, not just our recipient, uh, our being the beneficiary of it. Jesus did something for us, but uh, at the same time that he did something for us, he involved us in that cross. Paul says that he was involved in the cross. You will remember that he said, For I am crucified, when he's talking about justification by faith, that he is getting the benefits of Christ's atonement. He says, I am crucified. Christ has died for me, but he says, I am crucified with him. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because he died, I die with him. You will remember he said, that cross is my brag, my boast. God forbid that I should boast in anything save the cross. And in that cross for me, there was a death, a death to the world, and the world died to me so that I share in his crucifixion. Now, what does that mean for a person to uh, share in the cross of Christ? It means that one uh, never thinks of himself quite the same way again. You will notice, and that's the reason that I uh, turn uh, turn to the first opening uh, paragraph of the book of uh, Galatians where Paul identifies himself. You will notice he says when he speaks, letters here were different from our letters. We put our name at the end. It's the last thing. In this this day, the name went first. And uh, in that day, the name went first and then the titulature or the identification of the person went after that. And so Paul gives it. And so how does Paul identify himself? It's interesting, he says, because of the cross of Christ, my sense of self-identity is completely different. And how does he identify himself? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what he's doing is giving, it is an act of self-definition. Now, who are you? Paul is saying, I'm an apostle. I want you to know who I am. I'm an apostle. But it's interesting that the word apostle is not self-defining. You have to have something else to know what it means because you've got to say apostle of whom. And so Paul says, I'm an apostle. My, my identity is not in myself. If you want to know who I am, you're going to have to look somewhere else than in inside me. You're going to have to look to Jesus Christ. My identity is not in me. I am the apostle of Jesus Christ. And when I met him, the whole orientation of my life shifted. The whole orientation of my life shifted so that now the only way I know who I am is that I belong to him and he belongs to me. And if you want to know who I am, you'll have to know that I belong to him and he belongs to me. Now, I wish I knew how to make that as powerful as I feel it. The people that are around you find your identification in him if he's ever to get the center of the stage and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, we've got to get to the place where people say, oh yes, he, he's one of those Christians. He belongs to Christ. And Paul got that. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Paul, should, we shouldn't be surprised at that because that's the way Jesus identified himself. You will remember that uh, Jesus said to his disciples, At Caesarea Philippi, whom do men say that I am? And they got all the answers. They gave all the answers. Then he said, who do you think I am? They said, we know who you are. We found your identical. You are the Christ. But now who is the Christ? The word Christ means the anointed one. Now, if one is anointed, what's he anointed with? And who did the anointing? And what's he anointed for? It's interesting, Jesus did not find his identity in himself alone. He found it in relation to Israel's history. He found it, he was, he was the Christ, and the Christ was the son of David, and the Christ was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, and the Christ was the fulfillment of the promise given in the garden about the one that would crush the serpent's head. The Christ is the fulfillment of that. His identity is found in that long string of promises, and he says, we know that you are the son of the living God. And you know, a son is not the explanatory, isn't he? The minute I tell you he's the son, you have to say, whose son? And so Jesus did not find his identity in himself. Now, all of modern thought turns that exactly around. And we say, be yourself, do your own thing, find out who you are. Exactly. We're back in the garden And we're back in with Adam and Eve. Jesus came, and it is a complete revolution. Now, uh, it's interesting to find your self-definition in terms of another, isn't it? Let me uh, read for you a paragraph which Elsie showed me this morning, which I had read and forgotten. E. Stanley Jones. The deepest conviction of my life is this. Self-surrender is the way to self-expression. You realize yourself only as you renounce yourself. You find God when you renounce yourself as God. I like that line. (laughs) Because that brings us back to the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The jealousy of God is not for his position. The jealousy of God is for our well-being. And so he says, I'm the only one there is. And you need to get it nailed down because if you trust anybody else, that other one's going to fail you. I'm the only unfailing one, God. And so we try to be God. We take his place. It's interesting in all of the discussion of the flesh in, 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 in Paul, he never talks about the devil. You know, I think he would think that a lot of our discussion of the demonic was an alibi and excuse. <laughs> to get away from facing the problem, that the problem isn't outside us, the problem is inside us by our consent. And so, uh, in in all of his discussions of the flesh, the demonic is not a part of his discussion. Now, Paul believed in the demonic, it's there. But you see, when I turn this way, I have no defenses against the demonic. But the answer to the demonic is turning toward him, and when I turn toward him, I find freedom. Now, he says, You find God when you renounce yourself as God. The self is trying to play God, trying to organize life around itself as God. You know, uh, one of the amazing things about truth is you never know where you got it. I love the line in Tom Oden's second volume of his systematic theology in which he says, if there's anything original here, I've made a mistake. (laughs) Now, the typical systematic theologian is doing his best to be original. And Tom Oden said, very frankly, if there's anything original here, I've made a mistake. And, you know, I wonder if having, I read, I read Stanley Jones many years ago. I wonder if this concept, the self is trying to play God, trying to organize life around itself as God. And that's what, that's what sin is when it, we are organizing our life. I wonder if that's where I got it. Organizing our lives around ourselves. And it simply doesn't work. The universe doesn't back it up. (laughs) I like that. None of your sums add up except to nonsense. You have to lose your life in a higher will and work out that will. And then you find your life again. So Paul says, I've lost it. And when I lost it, I found it. Malcolm Muggeridge. To live, it is necessary to die. A life can only be kept by being lost. Propositions which strike contemporary minds as pessimistic, but which seems to me to be optimistic to the point of insanity, implying as they do that it is possible for mere man with his brief life and his stunted vision to aspire after a universal understanding and a universal love. Is this, being Christian? Now, he had caught on to what Paul was talking about. If you live your life according to the flesh, you die. If you live it according to the Spirit, which means you've got to surrender it, yield it. If you do, then you live. And he says that's what a Christian is. Uh, Okay. Well, I'll I'll go on with D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Let me put it positively. I've said that part of the trouble with these people is that they're still morbidly preoccupied with themselves, that they have not learned as Christians that they are to deny self and take up the cross and follow him and to leave themselves past, present, and future in his hands. Ah, yes, but why are they morbidly preoccupied with themselves? The answer is that they're not sufficiently occupied with him. It is our failure to know Him and His ways as we should know them. That is the real trouble. If we only spent more of our time in looking at Him, we should soon forget ourselves. Now, what we're dealing with is just biblical biblical sin. When we talk about sin as a violation of one of the commandments, we're talking about a derivation from from the origin. Because the origin is simply when we turn to our own way. And so Paul says, I've turned to him. And now that's where I find my identity. If you find yourself, he says, I don't find myself, my identity in terms of the law. I don't find my identity in terms of legal realities. I don't find my identity in terms of anything but another person. Another person. And you can't keep it. That's without developing the personal relationship and keeping it alive. That's the reason for your quiet time, not to win brownie points, but to keep in contact. I notice that with Elsie, if we don't have some time together, we get alienated from each other. We get at odds with each other. So our devotional life, all of it ought to be so that we're one with him and there's no disjuncture between us and no out of jointness. But isn't it interesting to find your identity in someone else? We have an analogy out there. There are a lot of analogies in life. But uh, for a long time, I was the president of Asbury College, and that helped define me. Because there were some things I, I wouldn't do because I was president of Asbury College, or I might have done if I had not been. Because I knew I had young people watching me, and they might misinterpret something. But uh, there's one that so many people involved. Isn't it interesting how, until relatively recently, when a woman got married, her identity was determined to some extent by her husband. Elsie lost her name when she married me. She was a blatant. Somebody says, who are you? And she defines herself in terms of me. Now, that, I think that was the reason for me, one of the major reasons for marriage. So we learn that it's not such a curse to be defined in terms of somebody else. It's possible for it to be a thing of joy and of pride that our self-definition is in terms of another. Now, uh, this, of course, fits the, the, the biblical definition and understanding of sin. That, as we said, it's seeing ourselves apart from him and his will. I reread uh, Genesis 3. And it was interesting, when they turned away to get the fruit, they got some other things. And in addition to the get, the getting the fruit, they got alienation from God and alienation from each other and alienation from themselves. And you read the next chapter and the whole family is alienated from each other. They now stepped from peace and joy and confidence into fear. They stepped from consciousness into an acute self-consciousness and they became aware they were nude, they were exposed. And they wanted something to cover themselves. They stepped into a life of blaming somebody else. They stepped into a life that ultimately ended in enmity and pain and humiliation and death. It's living, as Stanley Jones says, living against reality. We're made for something better than that. And it all is simply the matter of surrender, letting him be God and in in supreme control. Now, uh, Paul could write about this because he knew what he was talking about. You remember that uh, priceless testimony that he gives in, uh, in the seventh chapter of Romans when he speaks out of his own experience. He says, We know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. That's schizoid, isn't it? I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's what I do. Now he says, uh, two, two verses later, as it is, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. But it is sin living in me, and Paul understood by that it was the flesh, the self living within me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. for what I do is not the good I want to do, no the evil I do do not the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I that do it, but it is sin living in me that, that, that does it. And then he says in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of disintegration and death? And he says, thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is, there is, uh, redemption from that. Now, Paul defines what that means for himself in terms of self-definition, but he also defines it in terms. Defines it for us in terms of what we are supposed to be. Look at that second passage in Galatians that we read, where he speaks and says, "Those who belong to Christ Jesus," chapter five, verse twenty-four. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. They have crucified the flesh. They have had their self-will die with its passions and its lusts. Since we live in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, the next line is one that I, the kind of line I tend to skip over when I read the Bible. I don't know about you, but I suspect there's some kinds that you sort of slide over. But uh, oftentimes, when Paul moves to the application of it, I'm the theoretical kind of mind. I sort of slide over that to get to something that's more theoretical. You know, the theoretical is not nearly as intrusive. <laughs> You're much better protected. You can you can alibi that with the theoretical. But right here in the 26, he gets down very practical. What does it mean for us? Well, he said, "Don't be conceited." Now, none of us are conceited, but let me tell you about the word which is used. It is a word which is it, it is made up of two elements, two Greek elements. The word is kenodoxos and uh, doxoid here, uh, and the kenos keno, kenos comes from kenos, which means empty, and the Doxos comes from meaning to uh, seem or appear. And so it's what people think a thing to be. And so he says, don't be victimized by empty appearances. In other words, live by reality instead of by appearances. Do you know that that's one of the great advantages of the fullness of the sanctifying spirit in the human heart and mind? to where he touches us and there's an illumination that comes and we can decide what's important and what isn't and we don't have to listen to the world around us to tell us what's important and what isn't. How many of us live by appearances? You know, one of the things that scares me about theological seminaries today, today we live in the day when the emphasis is not on evangelism, it's on church growth. And you know what the implication is? The successful guy is the guy with the big church. And if he's got 15,000 people, he's a raving success. He's the kind everybody ought to emulate. And you know how easy it is for guys that are teaching preaching and church growth to take seminary boys off to some massive place? I read the biography of the Pope by a Polish writer who obviously had a great deal of reverence for him. The Pope uh, finished university in 1939, spent the summer vacationing, kayaking, I think. September the 1st, Hitler rolled into Poland. And September the 6th, Hitler owned Poland. And by September the 15th, every boy the Pope's age was headed for Russia in a German army unit except for a few who got out with green cards. Now to get a green card you had to be in a munitions related industry and one of the bishops gave to Carroll a green card and put him in a, a, a lime quarry and so for four years he cut stones and worked in the lime quarry. And may have been his life, may have been saved, but it's interesting. He became a worker. If you've ever seen his body, he's got the muscles, or in his earlier days, he did. When the war was over, they sent him to the university and he got a PhD. When he got the PhD, they then sent him to Rome and to get him acquainted with the bureaucracy there. So he spent 18 months in Rome. You know, he's about the only non Latin Pope in this, in a, a better part of a century. And so when he came back after 18 months there, they sent him to another university to work on another PhD. And then they gave him his first pastoral appointment. It was so far back in the mountains that he had to walk in to find it. There was no transportation otherwise to get into it. And he became a pastor. And so he is a pastor, shepherd, and a worker, priest. Now the power of that figure has given him an authority in the world that no other religious leader has. But when they sent him back in the hills to that little church, little parish, all of his friends said to him, what did you do wrong? Because they knew the guys who made the appointments had something in for him and were getting even with him. And they were his best friends. I know a black from Africa, Sierra Leone, who got a Ph.D. at Michigan State, went back home and became the president of a Wesleyan college out there. And uh, he was watching the evening news one evening, TV, and he saw the new appointments of the president of Sierra Le- Leone, and he noticed he'd just been appointed the ambassador to Spain. (laughs) Nobody had ever bothered to notify him. (laughs) But he learned on the TV that he was the ambassador to Spain and he was the official uh, liaison person from his government to the Vatican. (laughs) So he went to the Vatican to present his papers. And when he presented his papers, the Pope leaned over and said to him, Are you a Catholic? And he looked back and said, oh, no, I'm a Christian. And the Pope leaned over and patted him on the knee and grinned. (laughs) But uh, you know one of the things that frightens me about the mood in our seminaries today? as to what a success is. If Jesus wanted to live by the world standards, he'd have gone to Rome or Greece, Athens, wouldn't he? He surely wouldn't have gone. (laughs) grown up in Nazareth and Bethlehem and wouldn't have fiddled with Jerusalem. It was in an out of... Jerusalem was an out-of-the-way place. It was off the beaten path. We've lost the sense of going where the need is instead of going where we can appear to be important. And it blights us. It curses us. And these are born-again Christians that do it. But we need people who will say, God, where do you want me to go? We need people who will take people on their hearts where nobody's ever going to know they took them on their hearts and pour out their lives for ordinary people to be saved. Now, this is the kind of thing Paul's getting at, the difference between the flesh and the spirit. You can be in the pulpit and be filled with flesh. And if you let it control you, it'll kill the life of God in your soul. And you can be a backslider in the pulpit just as easily as you can on the front row or the back row. Are in the bar. You can be a backslider anywhere if you let that immediacy with Christ go, and that immediacy comes only when the flesh is crucified and Christ reigns supreme. Now he says, don't live by appearances, and he says, don't provoke one another. That'd take care of church problems, wouldn't it? (laughs) Why do we provoke one another? Because we want our way. It's to some advantage for us to provoke one another. And he says, very simply, don't provoke one another. I I wish I had the time to go through all of Paul's letters well enough and thoroughly enough that I had in my mind all of the marks that Paul gives of the carnal mind. But one of them is that it's just an irritant to people. They're just a problem, you know, because of their self-orientation. It's interesting in Philippians, here he gives three, reasons, three marks in Philippians, he gives four. One is, uh, what's in it for me? Second one, how do I look? Same as this. And the third one is, I deserve better than that. And the fourth one is, yes, Lord, but, you know, capital but. Uh, but now notice what the third one is, don't envy. Now, that's a different word from the word which he uses in uh, Philippians, but it's getting at the same thing. You know, I deserve better than this. Self-pity is a manifestation of distrust and complaint against God. (laughs) Self-pity is a manifestation of distrust and, and dissatisfaction with God. I had another word there. But self-pity when I just turn in on myself. Because what I'm saying is, God, why have you done all this to me? Read 1 Corinthians 10. And he describes the Hebrews who in the wilderness began saying, look at us back in Egypt, here's what we had, and look what, what this God has brought us to. And so when you, when, you, when you get into self-pity, sooner or later you're going to resent God. And when you resent God, you keep on and you'll be manifesting it in some kind of act. And the flesh will produce its own fruit. We need to be content with God's will. Uh, This is the opposite of don't envy. This, uh, in a sense, is um, when we envy, it's the opposite of Paul's apostleship. I'm not here because I wanted to come, (laughs) I'm here because he sent me. I'm not doing this because it's fun. I'm doing this because it's right. <laughs> I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this so you can know the way of redemption. It's a, it's, 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 the envying is just the opposite of his apostleship. He's content with Christ. Now, got all mixed up in my uh, notes here, but that's all right. We'll get through. All of that the results of unsurrender. Now, this is the reason, I think, that Paul places such an emphasis upon love. He cannot talk about the flesh without sooner or later talking about love. And to a, you and me, they're contradictory. And now, of course, that's why he does it. Because what Christ wants to do in my heart is something contradictory to my self-interest. He wants to bring me to the place where I'm not so concerned about me but I'm concerned about you, about somebody else. I'm turned inside out. And you know, uh, as I was working on this, I thought, uh, we understand some of that and our definition of it, our description of it is quite biblical. We talk about people falling in love. I wonder why we say that. Because when you fall in love, you've lost your balance. And when you lose your balance, you're not in control anymore. Your center of gravity has shifted. (laughs) And when your center of gravity shifts, your whole world is different. And something else is determining who you are and what you do and this kind of thing. And so Paul is simply saying, I'd like you to fall in love. Turn it all loose. Turn your attention to Christ. As was being said last night, all of you for all of me, Lord, that's what I want. I need you. I love you. And uh, one of the things that marked Connie was this incredible uh, devotion to Christ, incredible sense of love. You know, the thought that came to me as I was working on this, Paul talking about a different aspect of the cross, not just what we get from it, but our involvement in it. You know, that's the way Jesus viewed it. I think I can say, Bill, will you contradict me on this? that Jesus talked more about this dimension of the cross than he did the, the, the benefits that come from the cross. And let me give you the three places where it is crystal clear. And I wonder if Paul knew these when he wrote these. Because you see, the Gospels weren't written when Paul wrote this. These are written before the Gospels were written. So he didn't, he didn't sit down and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and then write to us. Now where did he get it? He got it out of that immediacy with Christ and when he went up to jerusalem he talked with peter and john peter and james and later went up and spent 15 days with peter james and john and boy you can count on it he was there tell me everything he ever said but now the three occasions are these one when he sent out the 12 he said not going to be easy and the only way you'll stand is if you got your priorities right Because if you've got any secondary priority in first place, you won't make it. He said, because this will bring tension between you and your parents. It'll bring tension between you and your spouses. It'll bring tension between you and your children. It'll bring tension between you and every relationship in your life. If the other person isn't related to Christ, to me, the same way you are. So he says, how will you stand? If you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Paul all over. You've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross. And the cross is the place where you deny yourself, where it's crucified. And follow me. Now, I cannot find an implication in the gospel from Jesus that a person can really follow Christ without the denial of self. You will remember the second one, is it? The confession at Caesarea Philippi. Where he is identifying himself. And what does that mean? Now they know who Christ is. And what does it mean to be a Christian? You know that Jesus is the Messiah. And you accept him as such. And you accept him as your Messiah. And they did that. And then he said, now, if you want to save your life, you'll have to lose it. If you want to gain it, if you you lose it for me, you'll gain it because you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, the third place where Jesus said it is when the Greeks came the last week. And when they came, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. And you remember two of his disciples came to him and said, there's some Gentiles out here they would like to see you. And immediately Jesus was conscious of the cross because the cross was not for Jews. It was for all, as Bill tells us, for all. And he knows immediately what's ahead. It just brings it fresh to him. And he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it's for this cause that I came under this hour. Except a corn of wheat, a grain of wheat, fall into the ground and die. It abides alone. But if it dies, it'll bring forth much fruit. He that saves his life will lose it, and he that loses his life will save it. will find it, gain it. Now, In those three instances, you have Jesus saying exactly what Paul is saying. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you follow the one who went to a cross and it means you go to. And we die to all that is alien to Christ and we find our identity in Him. Now, does that happen at the new birth? I want to say the major, massive step in this direction takes place at the new birth. But, you know, I'm convinced that The subtlety of our sinfulness is so great that you've got to be a Christian a little while before you realize how deep-seated it is. (laughs) I think you've got to walk with Christ for a while before you realize how different you are from Him. That was true for the disciples. It was only after three years that they began to find out that They wanted the first place at the table, and he said, you ought to take the last. They wanted the places of honor, and he said, no, you ought to be turned around. The world has its standards like this, and this is the way you're thinking, but my kingdom's like this. So you ought to be working your way down, not working your way up, if you're going to be like me. And you know the uh, passages. So the disciples, it took them three and a half years to find out how sinful they were. And then the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and cleansed their hearts and turned them loose. Now, uh, that's not only the way it was with uh, the disciples. That's certainly the way it was with me. You know, after I'd been a Christian a while, I began to find how sinful I was. Now, I'd quit all the outward outward stuff. I'd been genuinely converted enough, and I was in a Christian group which put inhibitions on me and helped protect me. I began to find in my heart the remnants of sin that needed to be dealt with. You know, I never felt as guilty before I was saved as I did a billion times after I was saved. You've got to be a Christian a little while to know what real guilt is. Now, uh, Bob is a pretty good illustration of that. It was when he met Christ after Howard Jones and Elton prayed with him, he began to feel his guilt. And that's what Bill's been telling us about the hymn. But the wonderful thing is that that cross, the blood of Christ, can get the remotest corner of my being and clean it up if I let him. But I've got to let him. I've got to surrender to him and then trust him. And as I trust him, he will fill me. And as he fills me, he will cleanse me. And boy, it's good to be clean. Now you've got to watch and stay there. But Peter fell. Old Paul had to look him in the face and say, You've done wrong because you're catering to the crowd and working by appearances instead of living standing straight for what's the truth. Peter slipped back into the flesh. You can, I can. You've got to keep that immediacy. So Paul said it this way, and what a beautiful line, if you live with the Spirit, walk in him. Now what does he mean if you live with the Spirit? For a long time I thought that ought to be turned around. If you walk in him, then you'll, you'll live by him. But that's work. You see, he puts his Spirit in us and gives us his life. Then we need to let that life flow out through us. But first of all, to flow through every corner of our being, And if we draw our life from him, the spirit of Christ, we ought to walk with him and not let anything in our lives that grieves him or hinders him. That's a priceless gospel, isn't it? That's freedom and that's joy in the Holy Ghost.